Ayama, Bosperum, Kumari, Kuma, Marawari. Uh, before I go on any further, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners, and in particular, uh, for these series of discussions, I'd like to honour and pay respects uh, to the Aboriginal men and women who um, made the ultimate sacrifice uh, for us and for many other First Nations people around this continent, which was, um, I guess you could say, putting their front foot uh, forward and, um, you know, laying their bodies on the line, spilling their blood um, in the first uh, 100 and almost 40 years, I guess, roughly, um, of the battle that um, raged uh, in this country um, and that battle being the frontier wars. Um, today is, um, I guess, what Australia calls Anzac Day, commemorating um, the sacrifices made by Australian and New Zealand um, forces uh, in the First World War, and I guess any wars that um, Australia and New Zealand participated in. Um, but with this series, what I want to do is chat to First Nations people um, about uh, the wars that Aboriginal people fought and defended um, in their countries uh, in a time when um, our people were considered subhuman and those events, you know, were orchestrated under this notion that, you know, we uh, shouldn't uh, exist and that these people at any cost, you know, should claim this land. Um, so without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, my brother, Callum. What's going on, Brass? I'm going on. Um, thanks for coming on and having a yarn. Been a, hopefully this is hopefully this can be um, a series of um, an amazing chats with yourself and the likes of uh, other First Nations people in this country, um, and maybe non First Nations people uh, that have wrote and recorded uh, the history um, of of our mob um, and the important history of our mob in the lead up, uh, you know, to the to the. You know, to the 1920s, and which I'm talking about is the Frontier Wars. Um, and in this conversation today, we'll be chatting about Callum's book, um, Surviving New England, A History of the Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse. Um, just before we go any further, tell us your mob and your country, please, brother. Yaga Ambeyang. So Ambeyang is the southernmost tribe of the New England Tablelands uh, in northern New South Wales. Um, uh, part of what many people know as the Anawan language group or the Anawan nation. Um, so my family, my people come from around Walka, Inglebar, Woolbrook, uh, down at the southern end of the New England Tablelands. Uh, my family names are Dixon or Shmutter, uh, I'm connected to the Morrisons or the Quins as well. Mm, awesome, deadly. And I think, you know, it being Anzac Day today, I might ask you a few questions a little bit later on uh, down the track about, you know, um, Anzacs um, and the sacrifice um, Aboriginal people made um, in the walls, um, and then I guess what um, they received uh, on coming back. Because me knowing you, uh, that's sort of personal to you as well. Um, so I'd love to get um, you know your story on that as well. But I guess just to kick off, um, the the title of this book is very strong. Um, surviving New England, but then also like the subtitle underneath that. Um, could you tell us a bit about how you come up with that title? Um, so the book was originally, the book's based on my master's thesis. Um, and when I was trying to come up with a title for it, it was something re really long and convoluted, something like surviving and resisting New England, um, a history of blah, 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 blah. Um, 
so I needed to shorten it. So I thought um, Surviving New England encapsulated the story that I wanted to tell. Um, it's both about uh, our people's fierce resistance against the uh, colonisation of our lands and lives here on the southern half of the New England tableland, um, but also about the conditions uh, and circumstances through which our people were forced to survive um, and managed to survive against all odds. Mm, so yeah, mm. that's I guess the, and in terms of the colonial apocalypse, um, part of the, the subtitle, um, what our people survived through and continue to survive through uh, is, is um, can definitely be described as an apocalypse. Like when you look through, when you look through what our people went through back in those first few decades of uh, colonization, so 1830s through to the 1860s, it was absolutely apocalyptic. What happened to the people themselves? What happened to the country? Um, like it was just such a, a massive um, change at a very, very tumultuous time for our people. Definitely, definitely was. Um, <clears throat> you know, because when you look at it, uh, the title and the subtitle really stand out. Uh, very, very strong, um, you know, like the way that you worded that and, and that you put that in as well. And something interesting that you just mentioned um, as well was, um, you know, that whole surviving part, you know, one was resistance and the resilience side, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess the reaction to, you know, new people, uh, alien people, you could say as well, coming in and sort of, you know, using this, um, I guess back then, you mob could have said like this sort of alien way of farming and destroying the land and how they treated each other. Um, you know, very, very, very interesting um, uh, uh, title and subtitle. Um, so I guess, yeah, tell us a bit about the book, like you just did just then in terms of, um, you know, the, the title. Uh, yeah, just tell us some more about the book and um, without, I guess, giving it away, because I know, and at the end of this year, we'll let you sort of plug it and where people can uh, get it as well. Um, sure. you know, yeah, so you can plug that. But yeah, I guess just briefly, just tell us a bit about the book. So the way it came about was, I never intended to, to write about this kind of history. Um, my intention was to uh, work on the reclamation of our traditional language from the archives. And all I wanted to do for my research was just spend a couple of thousand words uh, just briefly describing and explaining how our language here up on the, the table and um, ended up in the state that it's in, i.e. that it's been dormant for something like 70, 80 years since about the 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I started doing was looking through uh, the, the histories that have been written about the region, both specifically about the Aboriginal experience up here um, and just broader histories about the, the cloning process. And what I found was that our people's story was almost always just a footnote. Um, it was either the chap chapter one in some uh, pastoral history of a particular part of the area, um, chapter one in a, in, a, in a book about a, um, a particular station, um, and our people were only just uh, a very, very small, um, I guess got a very small mention uh, in, in the histories that have been written about the area and our people. Mm -hmm. um, so what that motivated me to do is continue digging and digging and eventually I decided well I think there's a there's a need here to look deeper to dig deeper um, dig around in the archives as much as possible leave no stone unturned and try and put back together the most 
comprehensive picture possible from the archives, that is, of our people's experience of resistance uh, and resilience through that early colonial period. Because a, a lot more is known and spoken about in terms of like the protection era and the, the welfare, the, the era of the welfare board um, than is known about and spoken about that early period because it's much more fragmented um, mm. and it's longer ago. Uh, people, like, there's less of that kind of memory, um, less of that kind of history and story retained within both like I guess our own community and the broader community, but like uh, the the history that um, non-Aboriginal people remember from um, that time there, or that has been passed down, is much less than what's been passed down from say the later 1800s or the early 1900s. And I guess it's the same um, the same for us in terms of um, like the, I guess how that um, story has become clouded over time, and mm. it hasn't been clouded. Um, unintentionally um there's been this conspiracy of silence and a lot of denial by uh, by the colonizer and by the education system uh, in terms of um whitewashing and downplaying the kinds of violence that took place um in order for the colonial project to proceed um so i guess the book is the book is aimed at uh, uncovering some of that history by exploiting the colonizer's own archival materials um, and to tell that story of our people's fierce resistance against all odds um, and yeah to really highlight our people's um, story of survival against against overwhelming odds so just to flip the narrative of how you know um, history is told in in the New England area just flipping history, that paternalistic sort of um, noble savage, whatever, you know, um, got conquered, all that stuff. Um, I, are you sort of happy that you sort of drifted away from what you initially were doing in terms of, you know, the rec reclamation of your language, which I know you're still continuing uh, to do as well, but in terms of halting that project to get onto this here one, um, you know, uh, were you sort of trying to push away away from that and sort of stick to the language stuff or was it always something sort of easy to just to go to and just go down and obviously it isn't easy because of the research and I'm sure some of the the archival stuff that you came through would have been you know if not somewhat traumatizing and um, yeah. what you're reading about as well but are you sort of happy with the fact that um, you put this out knowing that you sort of um, shifted off the path in terms of the language revival stuff? Just, just before I'm um, going to that I uh, just wanted to mention one more thing in relation to um, like the, the way in which history has been uh, told uh, about this area and about our people. Mm -hmm. uh, often uh, the colonizers' uh, accounts of our people or even like more contemporary histories that have been written about our people in this region often try and focus on, oh, look at, look at the really positive relationships that existed between um, uh, pastoralists and squatters on this particular station here and the local Aboriginal people, ignoring the fact that that pastoral station, in order for that to exist and to have been set up, Aboriginal people mm. have to have been dispossessed and often mm. violent. So I think uh, what a lot of non-Aboriginal historians end up doing is trying to, or just people who are writing local histories, 
uh, is highlight these supposedly positive experiences that have and positive relationships that have arisen between Aboriginal people and the invaders um, without examining the core uh, the core issues underlying those supposedly positive relationships. Mm. Um, or, or even on that as well, um, you know, they focus sort of on, you know, the history of massacres or they focus on the history of, you know, these policies as well, where, you know, it, it sort of comes from like a paternalistic uh, point of view and how it's looking at history. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. this is the, the, the history that they're focusing on. So this is the history when, you know, Joe Blow, you know, picks the book up and say, oh, I've never heard this part about history of Aboriginal people. This must yeah. be the only thing that ever happened and ever, you know, that they ever did as well. Um, you know, yeah, when there's in often fact, a lot of focus, like, as you said, on, like, massacres and what the colonizer did to our people. Yeah. Um, and that's really, like, that. that's half the picture. And that's a really important part mm. of the picture. Definitely. But the other half of the picture is what did our people do in response? Like, mm. highlight the resistance. Like, there's all this massacre mapping, um, which is really important. However, I think it's equally as important to map our resistance. Definitely, and I definitely. Think perhaps there's a perhaps there's an uncomfortability or an uncomfortableness um, uh, of um, some 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 non-Aboriginal historians might feel some kind of uncomfortableness about uh, mapping the resistance. There might be some kind of uh, some something else going on there, maybe. Yeah. Mm, mm, definitely. In, in terms in terms of like um, uh, diverging from that original. Uh, language project, which I've now come back come back to. Um, I guess this historical research about our people's experience during that early period has helped explain um, to a large extent, like what, like how our language ended up in the state that it's in, because people often ask, like, well, why why is our language so much worse off than those on the coast or out west? And it's not just because it's not it's not because our people cherished our language any less um, than other people did. It's because of the the unique experience that our people had up here of mm. colonisation. You have um, more sheep and more 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 livestock overall flooding into the New England region than anywhere around us, than the Liverpool Plains and the Guada River region, than the Clarence River district and the Clay River district. Um, the only other district that neighbours the New England region that came close to the flood of livestock and colonists into the region was the Darling Downs. And mm. I think, as, as far as I understand, um, the Darling Downs Aboriginal languages have ended up in a similar state to our own. Mm. So you can link language loss or language decline to livestock. The, the amount of livestock that flooded into a region and how that works is that um, once you get hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of sheep and cattle into a region that start depleting all the native food resources, blackfellas have got a number of choices to make or a number of options. Either go and become refugees in the rough country and eventually get hunted out by the native police, um, starve to death, continue fighting uh, a guerrilla guerrilla war and get killed or assimilate and mm. um and go on to stations come on to stations um uh, become become past part of the pastoral economy or on the outskirts of it at least um work for rations 
and that's how that's how a lot of people end up surviving. And so if 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 more of our people ended up on stations more quickly and in in closer proximity to white people than anywhere around us, and had to spend all that time with white people all the time, mm. um, then our people were forced to speak English a lot quicker than others were. Mm. So the, the story of language loss goes way back because there's there's very few colonists in the area that bothered to learn the local language. So if you're forced to go and work on a station where they won't work, won't learn your language and you've got to learn English, then that that's where that's where language, the story of language decline kind of begins way back there, long before the protection board and the welfare board and the and the banning of languages through mm. through laws mm. and like those kinds of policies that happened way back then. Like the the, the beginnings of that started like, mm. um, back mm. in the 1830s, as soon as uh, livestock came uh, up onto the table and with, with squatters and that. Mm. Um, just before we get into talking about sort of, um, I guess, the relationship and the resistance um, and how fast it kicked off, when did, well, I guess, what was sort of life like? Uh, could you sort of describe us, uh, describe to us about um, how the mob were pre-colonisation in terms of how many clans or, you know, um, what, 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 what it was like before and did you just hear sort of uh, messages, you know, from other nations saying, well, you know, these white followers are coming up? All right. So um, prior to colonisation, uh, you had um, five different tribal groups that make up um, what we now know as the Anuan language community or language language group. Um, those were Umbeyang, Yanuan, Inuan, Radun and Anirwan. Um, and the entire Aboriginal population of the Tableland, according based based on analysis of what is very, I guess, very limited um, historical records and data, um, would have been something around twelve to thirteen hundred people across the entire Tableland. So for them five groups, you might have had about five or five or six hundred uh, Anuan people to begin mm. with, and so within within uh, something like within a decade, there was more. There was just as there was either more or just as many white people up here on the tableland as there was Aboriginal people within mm. just a decade. Or Anuan, and then to, to be precise, yeah. Oh, not on the entire tableland. Oh, okay, right, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so, if you so by the end of that eighteen by eighteen thirty nine, there was something like. Uh, 450, something like 450 male colonists up here. All, almost all of them with access to guns and ammunition and other weapons. And so you've got four, say 450 um, male colonists with um, firearms. And you look at the number of um, like fight, so-called fighting men, that's how they referred to, um, referred to our warriors in like the commissioner's reports and that. The number of fighting men had already been dwarfed up here on the tableland by the within within what's that seven or eight years mm. by the number of um, um, colonists up here. So it's just a massive, absolute massive um, outpopulation and like flooding of the region with um, livestock and colonists. So what? So not not so. Eighteen thirty nine is when they first came. They landed 1832 was when the first mm. squatter arrived around the Walker district, Hamilton Collins Semple, um, and he took up Walker Station. And within seven years, there was 
something like 450 colonists up here. Mm. And within, within something like about, within about 30 years, for every one Aboriginal person, there was about 16 white people mm. in 30 years. When did it all start and kick off in terms of uh, the resistance um, and the resilience against uh, squatters, uh, colonial forces, uh, police or whoever? You know, did that kick off immediately or was it some time after? Um, the earliest, I guess the, like Hamilton Collins Semple gave evidence to the New South Wales Legislative Council um, about his experience on the frontier and he talked about um, upon upon uh, encountering Aboriginal people for the first time, he said they were always hostile, always hostile. Mm. And but after a while, after the after the people had become acquainted with the power of white people, i.e., guns, um, that that hostility went away. That's that's what essentially what he said. So mm. after, after that demonstration of raw power, after that. Um, demonstration of violence. Um, yeah, so he said, yeah, there was hostility from the get-go, but the mm. earliest reports uh, of frontier conflict were in the mid-1830s and they started to appear in the, um, mm. in the Sydney newspapers about shepherds being speared, cattle and sheep being taken, and then once you get to about 1830, once, once you get to 1838, um, so that's the this around the same time as the Mile Creek Massacre. Mm -hmm. um, you get the first, you, ha you had a few um, uh, labourers on stations. Uh, so I think it was Yarrowitch down in the southeastern corner of the Tableland, and I think it was on the Mile High Creek run that a number of shepherds were killed and had their sheep taken. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a uh, lieutenant by the name of George Cobbin took a detachment of the amount of police up onto the tableland and pursued to the alleged murderers of the shepherds. Mm. Um, and mm. that was the first official uh, expedition, police, police action uh, on the tableland in 1838. And it was only a couple of, couple of months before the Mile Creek Massacre. And mm. they, ended up, they ended up being a, a battle over near Surveyors Creek. Um, and one Aboriginal man ended up with his head chopped off and put on a stake. Um, yeah, mm. so that, that, that's the kind of violence that's, um, that's taken place up here. Mm -hmm. Just in that as well, um, you know, you were talking, uh, like you just mentioned, you know, one of the first sort of interactions that kicked it off was in, like the killing of sheep or, or, or cattle, you know, and also the, 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 the herder or whatever you want to call him. Um, can, can, like, um, that part there, I reckon, you know, is important to sort of chop up as well because, you know, they're not just marching cattle or sheep or whatever, you know, through a barren land or through or through grassy green for them to get a feed. They're essentially sort of going on to somebody's, you know, could you could sort of break that down in terms of how that, you know, I guess essentially, essentially like pissed off, you know, blackfellas or, or sort of like broke, you know, I guess the protocols of the mob. You know, like, you know, the taking sure. of cattle and what it did, you know, in terms of going through and destroying country. Yeah. So when it comes to accounts of frontier conflicts at that time, um, so the newspaper reports, squatters' diaries, um, commissioners' reports, um, they make very little reference to what they thought were the motivations of Aboriginal resistance activities. So they talked about 
the killing of sheep and shepherds and um, and cattle and uh, and all that in a way. So they described them as like random random acts of violence. They had no there was there was no purpose to them. It was just um, violent violent Aborigines killing killing shepherds and um, taking off with sheep. Um, but what you find later on, so move forward to like the 1880s and into the early 1900s, you get people who lived in the region reflecting on uh, the conflict that took place and calling it warfare mm. and saying that Aboriginal people were responding to invasion of our lands. Mm -hmm. So you've got, you've got those, those uh, local settlers who've lived in the region acknowledging the that it was um, it was a, a state of war, but then back then when it was happening, mm. they were just random acts, and then move forward to the time of the history wars or, or just more recent times in general, and you've got people denying that there was there was war. Yet go back a hundred years, and you've got white people historic historians and settlers very frankly acknowledging it as war, mm. um, and talking about these acts of resistance as responses to trespass, like they talked about the white mm. trespasses on the lands of, on our lands, um, and other, other things, other motivating factors in the resistance were things like um, the widespread abuse of Aboriginal women by mm. uh, white colonists. Um, so often, often attacks on settlers were um, taken in revenge for that hey, kind Mark. of thing. Yeah. And you had, um, like there was one story about a couple of thousand sheep being, being taken from a station called Salisbury, which is around um, the Urala area, mm -hmm. southeast of Armadale. And of those 2,000 sheep that were taken, several hundred of them were found just laying around dead with their kidneys taken out. And I had to do a bit of digging and research into that. Um, and there's all these accounts of um, livestock and shepherds and um, and that having their kidneys taken out by uh, Aboriginal people in different parts of the country, all, all up the east coast, I think. Um, and so I kept digging a bit more. And then there was all these accounts of like traditional practices to do with um, um, like the use of kidney fat and the cultural significance and spiritual significance of it. Mm. Um, so there's this element of kind of like spiritual warfare um, in there as well, where where mob would like put the kidney fats on the tips of spears and things like that, um, and it was essentially a I think yeah it was a, yeah essentially I guess an act of um, spiritual spiritual warfare. So there's all these kind of different elements to it, um, and like like you said, there was all this damage being done to country, and mm. if country is what sustained our people. Um, resistance was a necessity in order to um, in order to sustain um, to continue sustaining our people mm. because if and, and I guess I guess what happened uh, along the way was our people tried to adapt so if the native food resources were being depleted so all the vegetation being absolutely smashed by these livestock um, shepherds, Going around tearing down all and destroying all the, the big nets that we had hanging up, um, and all the kangaroos and, and other and other animals and that being driven driven off into the rough country. 
uh, our people started hunting and killing uh, and eating livestock. So there's all these accounts of um, shepherds and whoever else coming across an Aboriginal camp on the edge of the gorge, say, um, and black holes are made uh, like our own fold, our own um, pen for the sheep and are shepherding them and eating them. <laughs> so this kind of adaptation, trying to trying to um, survive, uh, yeah, trying to survive and trying to go from like native food resources that have been depleted to this new food resource. But that adaptation became very short lived because what happens when you take the colonizers' livestock is the colonizers come after you with guns. Mm -hmm. So, so that yeah, there was those attempts at adaptation, but they were uh, ultimately futile because of. Um, because of the violence that was meted out in response to the taking of those livestock. Mm -hmm. I guess, um, you know, and, and, you know, you're talking about uh, the resistance and the resilience, you know, throughout your whole nation, you know, um, I guess other accounts of sort of frontier wars, you know, um, some authors, Indigenous and non-Indigenous sort of focus on um, an individual um, and sort of their act of resistance. Your book sort of d d it tells about sort of different um, accounts of resistance throughout the nation. Yeah. So, um, like one of the one of the main motivating factors for putting this book together and for doing this research was like a number of conversations that I had with um, members of my family, in particular one of my uncles, um, uh, Bill Witters, and a number of like conversations that I had with him, like he said, like, I want to, I want to know, I want to know for sure that like my ancestors, that our ancestors like didn't just lay down and die, that they fought back just like the Māori did in New Zealand, just like the native people in North America did. Like I know about Sitting Bull, I know about Pamaway, like, but what about around here? What about our resistance fighters? What about our, like, our, like our people? Um, mm. And like, so that set me on kind of like a, uh, like a, a journey of like trawling through as much archival material as possible to find every piece of evidence to do with our resistance. And every piece that I found, I, it was quite an empowering experience um, mm. because it was able to, well, it, it helped us to, to put a, to put even more a fuller, uh, more comprehensive, uh, detailed picture of our people's fierce resistance. Um, mm. and tell us, oh, sorry, sorry. Okay. I was just going to say like one of the other things that he, that um, uncle said was that he like, he wanted a name. He wanted someone that he could identify with. He wanted, and he didn't want, uh, cause often like white fellas in the new, whether it be the newspapers or government officials, like they'd refer to our people by really kind of patronizing generic names like, um, Billy or Bob or, um, like Jemmy, like those kinds of things, introduce foreign names. Um, but he, want, he wanted a, a lingo name. Mm. And so when I came across the first one, um, I remember being out of uni, uh, finding it, ringing him up, saying, I found it, I found, I found this name. Um, and, he, and then he said, oh, go on then, come round. And so I printed out the article, raced around to his house and showed him and just like stood there and watched him read it and just like he had this big grin on his face. And so the fellow's name was Wombardi. And Wombardi was uh, an Aboriginal man from up here on the tableland. And he was involved in like a, a coordinated resistance activity down, uh, resistance <coughs> down in the Port Macquarie district. So him and a number of other warriors uh, 
attack day station, I think Kogo station down the Pukwukwari district, uh, killed a number of um, colonists there, and then um, they end up uh, searching for these alleged murderers. Um, so, and then Wombardi was eventually captured and taken down to Sydney, and his name appeared throughout the Sydney papers for a while. Um, and one of the things that they kept saying about him was, oh, we can't find an interpreter for him because the New England language is so different to anything that uh, any white person's come across before. Mm. So there's this, this talk about, like, 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 there's that cultural element to it as well, like how unique our language was uh, or how unique our language is. Um, and then there's this man with a language name. And so, so he said to one of my other uncles, you've got to call me Wombardi now. He put, <laughs> he, he, put, he put his name in my other uncle's phone as Wombardi. <laughs> so there's that, like, there's that identifying within like pride, pride in, um, uh, in being able to reclaim those stories and those identities from the archive. And mm. um, just before I finish on Wombardi, like one of my uh, old cousins, Nami, did a number of illustrations for the book. Yeah. Like, like, um, like, yeah. <clears throat> we'll get to the illustrations a, a bit later, like in terms of the support you got um, from community. I just wanted to sort of, Sorry? I just wanted to show uh, uh, the one of Wombardi. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, man. So Na Nami done like a, an illustration of Wombardi and she mm -hmm. used a, um, a photo of my uncle um, and modelled it off him. Yeah, deadly. Uh, and like in honour of him because he, he passed away um, not that long ago. So we, oh. yeah, she done that like in honour of him. Yeah. Deadly. Sorry to hear about that as well. Um, there was two interesting things that you mentioned within that. <clears throat> um, one was like the research side and like that's what I wanted to ask as well like in terms of um, what journey took you on and what were some of the kind of things that you found and I guess obviously that would have been one of the um, highlights in terms of you know finding and in the beginning as well because I'm sure you, you would have come across many other things like that as well yeah so I guess like in the early stages of this particular research, like it was a, like there was a lot of excitement and a lot of like hunger, hunger for um, finding that material and being able to slowly piece the the story back together, mm -hmm. um, and to tell our people's fear story of resistance. Like that was the main thing that I wanted to highlight. Like we we know we know we've been told and read and uh, so many so many things about the, the things that are being done to our people. Mm -hmm. It's like what about our people's fierce resistance? What about our people's agency so i think that's one of the things that i really wanted to highlight and i guess like i did it somewhat in a chronological way so moving through the 1830s um there was a massive amount of um uh frontier conflict that took place in early 1839 just after the mile creek murderers were hung and one of the one of the um uh, letters that was published in one of the Sydney papers about uh, an attack on a station down around where my family's from um, mentioned that, oh, since the uh, seven or how many there were, were hung, the blacks up here have been much more audacious and much more, um, uh, like there was this just this peak, this kind of, uh, this, this, this massive increase in resistance activity. So all of a sudden in early, in the first few months of 1839, stationed there, stationed there, attacked, attacked, um, sheep being taken night after night from a particular station, 
Shepard getting killed here, Shepard getting killed over there. Um, and what it ended up doing was some squatters or some, some pastoralists were forced to take their livestock off the table and because of how fierce the resistance was. Mm-hmm. So like finding that kind of thing and be able to piece that together just for those first few months of 1839, how fierce our resistance was at that particular time. And then like moving forward into the early 1840s where you've got now the border police that have arrived in 1839. So you've got a permanent police presence and the permanent government presence in the form of um, uh, Commissioner MacDonald. Um, and so resistance starts to decline a bit um, and you just got the, the influx of colonists um, increasing more and more rapidly. Uh, so resistance became less and less uh, if effective, I guess, um, in terms of being able to achieve its goal. It just became, I guess, virtually impossible to stop, like, stop the tide of, um, of the partial, of the colonial occupation. Mm. And then you move forward into um, the 1850s, early 1850s and 1852, there was two major massacres on the eastern side of the tableland um, involving an Armadale constable um, and another big pastoral uh, station owner. Um, so telling those kinds of stories. Um, and then right at the end of the frontier conflict in, our re- in, in this particular um, area, you have uh, like battles with the native police in the gorge country. Hmm. So the native police were brought down from um, from Queensland, I think from the Dawson River, and under under the command of a um, of a white officer, and they brought them down to deal with uh, the resistance going on down in the Maclay River district. And so you had mob down in Maclay uh, getting guns. Mob down in Maclay were getting guns as payment for work on some of the stations down there, payment in guns and ammunition. So mob down there were stockpiling guns and ammunition and then attacking stations, um, raiding stations. And then they brought the native police down and the native police ended up pushing those Maclay rebels up towards the tableland. And then you had some New England resistance fighters join up with them and then have these big battles in the gorge with, so there were all these, all these mob, um, with um, with guns and having stockpiles of uh, ammunition, that fighting with the native police, uh, and so that all happened in kind of like the early 1860s, 1860 to about 1864, I think was the last. 1865 was the last recorded incident. Um, so I kind of like I guess on that, uh, and it took like just before I move on from that, like it took three, the combined efforts of three police forces to squash that last um, part of the resistance. So you had the, the native police, the Armanel Constabulary and the Northern Patrol, which were on the gold fields. And so they kind of squished, uh, squeezed um, the resistance fighters all in from, from all sides. Um, but like all the, the reports in the Armanel Express and these CD papers and all that about what was going on at that time, there was like, there was uh, obvious panic among the white population about all these warriors streaming up from the Bellinger River and the, the, the mob at Oban, which is northeast of Armadale, acting as spies and guides for them. So, and, and planning big attacks on um, stations and taking off with cattle. And um, so there, there was this kind of, I guess there was a bit of a, a journey that I went along like at the, at the beginning, like there was, 
kind of like a, an excitement about finding this information and being able to piece back the, together the story about people's resistance. But I guess towards the end, like there was that feeling of, oh, like, oh, it's, it's like that, that part of the resistance, it's, it's over. Like our people end up getting militarily defeated. So I guess there was a bit of an emotional, um, like I felt different emotions along that kind of path, realising like when I'd come to that part at the end, like, I thought, like our, yeah, our people end up um, getting defeated and there was, um, yeah, I don't know, I think there was a bit of a slump. What, what did that do to you? Um, like there was a lot of, there was a lot of pride. There was a lot of, um, I guess, anger at the things that were done to our people um, and the way that our people were talked about. Uh, and, and then a lot, of, like, a lot of, I guess, sadness at like, what our people went through and, um, yeah, yeah, that, that just coming to, coming towards, I guess, the end of that um, that period by the mid-1860s where the frontier wars had come to an end and the, the armed resistance, not the resistance, but the armed resistance had come to an end. Like there was that, um, I don't quite know how to describe it, but yeah, I, I was definitely feeling quite different um, when I'd come to that point as to when I was um, beginning the research. Yeah. Is <clears throat> was there an instance where like oh no nah, hell that no nah, fuck this I might just change it and say you know like we won and we we killed all the white followers <laughs> change the narrative. No, but I think I think with something like this, if you <clears throat> if if you're putting stuff out there saying well this is what happened, and you're gonna have you're gonna have your your racists, your conservatives, mm. your, your your cynics. And your skeptic, or your skeptic, um, try and pull your work apart. So I guess I've tried to be as as precise and exact as possible. Yeah. So hopefully there's not too many um, conservative historians pulling my work apart. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, just on that, um, you had many other people uh, involved in the book as well. Um, you know, you mentioned your cousin um, uh, was the author in, in terms of uh, done some of the imaging, uh, drew uh, some yeah. of the illustrations, and then also you mentioned your uncle saying, you know, where can I, you know, when am I going to hear about my own mob? Um, yeah. Well, what was their reaction in terms of them reading it, and um, you know, the, uh, after you finish the end product, you're like, oh, here, I'm here, cuz, you know, what do you think of this? Well, it, it, it wasn't so, so much of like doing all, doing all this research, putting the book together and saying, here it is, look what I found. Like there was all that, look what I found, uh, have a read of this was going along, was, yeah, was happening all along the way. So like, I'll be at it, like, like I said before, I'll be out at uni, I'd find something, go around to Michael's house, Bring one of my aunties, bring one of the other articles, and like talk to them about it, uh, or give them copies of it along the way. And one of the other things that we did along the way was um, produce me and my cousin Gabby Briggs. We produced a publication called a short publication called Morgan and Gun, uh, Resisting New England, and it's about a 50, 50 page um, kind of zine ish publication, um, and it's just a collation of excerpts from the archive that tell. Um, like the raw picture of the conflict that happened up here. No analysis or anything, just 
the raw um, raw quotes and excerpts from squatters' diaries, from commissioners' mm. reports, from newspaper articles, you name it. Um, so it wasn't a matter of like waiting till um, the book was out, like the, the final book was out. Like we were trying to disseminate that <coughs> among the community and, and the broader community, um, like along the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, you'll have to, at the end as well, let people know if they can get a copy of that as well. I'm sure people will be interested um, in that as well. Um, so, like you just mentioned, you know, throughout the whole process, you were showing the uncles and the aunties and the cousins saying, oh, look, I found this part, I found this part. So there was sort of community involvement within um, the, the structure of this book or sort of how it was put out or, or just when you got something, you're like, here we go, here's, here's more information, here's more? I guess um, it was the, like that kind of thing, I guess, was one of the driving factors, was one of the like motivating factors um, and reminded me of why I was doing the research. Um, and one of the other like collaborative elements of the book is like, I worked with um, my younger cousin, Nami Collins-Witters, who was only 14 at the time when she'd done all these illustrations. Mm -hmm. um, and so she, she produced a set of 10 or 11 illustrations of um, different things that have been described in the archive. So, um, what, I, what we do was I'd pick something out of the, the, the book and I'd say, okay, we're going to try and get this one illustrated here. This, uh, this particular uh, incident of frontier conflict this took, on this, took place on this station at this time. And there was a detailed description of uh, like a raid on a station and then the search party going after the culprits and all that kind of stuff. That was the first one. Yeah. And so I went, round, I went round, met up with Nami and we, sat there and had a look at um, the description. Um, then we do things like we go and visit particular parts of country to get an idea of what that particular area um, would have been like to be able to illustrate it. Um, like we collected a whole lot of photos, looked at old, um, like for the native police, like got old photos of what the native police looked like and what they were, what they were dressed in. Um, so yeah, we did, we did quite, like there was quite a lot involved in that illustration process. Um, and yeah, like it was just really amazing to watch Nami capture those uh, those moments in our people's history, most mm. of which were were moments of conflict, whether that be um, attacks on stations or battles of native police in the gorge country, um, or our people who'd just been captured by the border police uh, in neck chains. So capturing those really kind of full on. Um, full-on uh, images and moments in our people's history. Mm. But also there was the one illustration <laughs> of, um, of Lombardi uh, and like a big um, ceremonial cultural event that took place um, that was observed near Armadale. So it's kind of, it's, it's multifaceted. And, but, mm. but yeah, like those, I guess those, those images, those illustrations add like a really special and important dimension to the book. Uh, capturing those moments in, I guess, like ways that words just can't. Mm. How long has the book been out and how has it sort of been received so far? Um, we launched it on the 5th of December 2019. So what's that, for five months? Mm -hmm. yeah. Something like that, yeah. Um, we originally got 1,000 copies printed. We've gotten rid of close to 700 now. Good. Um, and there's been a lot of interest within both the local Koori community 
and the broader community. Um, quite a number of book, bookshops locally have been getting rid of a lot of copies and they've had a lot of interest. Um, uh, now I've had, had some pretty, pretty, um, pretty positive feedback from people who've read it uh, in terms of like one, one guy said, oh, I drove, um, I drove from Armadale to Dorigo or the coast or something and all the signs and um, places along the way, he said he was like reading the landscape in a different way because mm. all, you get all these signs that are named after people that are named in the book. All mm. these squatters, um, constables, commissioners, um, and you like, like, and I noticed that along the way too. Like when I was piecing all this together, I noticed that I was reading the landscape in a different way and noticing other things that I hadn't noticed before. Mm-hmm. So it was like a, there's a, um, um, a place, a place out along uh, the road towards going towards Ebor or just after Ebor, um, called Majors, Majors Point or Majors Creek or something like that. And that place there was named after Major Edward Park, who was involved in those two major massacres in 1852. Mm. So it's just those, those signposts, those like very literal signposts, are signposts to our history. Even when you walk around Armadale and see all these street names that are named after people like Henry Danger, mm. uh, who was uh, or Henry Danger, or just people who'd written stuff, not necessarily done stuff. Like I guess you, you end up looking at a... Um, I, it offers people an opportunity to look at um, um, mm. the, the built environment, I guess, in, a, in even a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, sort of in this back part of it of our yarn as well. Um, on that as well, on that part as well. Um, how has it sort of, you know, has it sort of changed the way that you know, I guess, local mob have sort of looked at like the landscape as well in terms of reading it as well like have you have you have you had a chat to any of the community mob saying oh you know from reading the book i just noticed that you know that street is named after old bart or um i guess like a like few of the comments that have come back from like community have been like that like that pride in like all centered around that pride and like it's it's telling our people's story of mm. of resistance it's telling like it, it's talking about how how our people were warriors yeah, how, yeah, and yeah. fought back, and like the, I think I think that's probably been the main thing. The main thing, yeah, yeah. And I think that was the main thing that I was hoping to awesome. to, to 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 put across. Yeah, no, so yeah, I think that, that was that was really yeah, good to, yeah. to hear that. Really, really yeah, um, awesome. Yeah, thanks for correcting that question. I knew I wanted to go somewhere uh, with that, and I just went all silly. Um, well. Like we've been down and you know for over forty minutes now as well, um, and we'll just like we might wrap up soon. Sure. In terms of where people can get this book, where uh, can they get it? Um, at the moment, you're probably best uh, ordering it directly from the publisher, which is us, Newara Aboriginal Corporation. Um, what what is so it? So Newara Newara is our word for um, the New England peppermint tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you just check out our Facebook page, there'll be a link there, how to order. Um, it's, uh, 30 bucks for, um, uh, non-Aboriginal people and organizations, businesses, schools, etc., and 20 bucks for mob. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so, so that's on that Facebook page that's named after 
Yep. Okay. Cool. So can you just spell it for us as well, just just for the people? Newara. N e w a r a. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Um, and that zine as well that you said. Um, where can I get a copy of that? Um, we do still have a few copies of that. Um, so if you just inbox us um, on that Facebook page, or awesome. you can also send an email if you want to order either of them, or just uh, wanting more information. What about you your shirts? And the shirt too. You can send an email to revivinganawan at gmail.com. So revivinganawan, A-N-A-I-W-A-N at gmail.com. And we also have these t-shirts here. Resisting New England. Remember the frontier wars? And there's also um, like a description on the back um, about that mounted police expedition onto the table in 1838. So we put these t-shirts out actually uh, in commemoration of 100, I think it was 180 years since that took place. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, to anybody yeah, checking this out, uh, please hit up, you know, these mob on Facebook, uh, that, that, uh, that email as well, um, and get a copy of this book. Uh, don't know how long, don't know how long, you know, I'm in lockdown. So why not, you know, buy this book and, and definitely read it, um, and talk about it as well. Um, because it, it is really important because it's talking to, talking about a history that I guess in, uh, in the in the perspective of Callum and his mob, it's it's very local to them because it happened in the area to their mob as well, and that's why it's important if you live in and around that area in New South Wales or in other parts of Australia, um, definitely get things like this here, books like this that uh, talk about this. Like one for myself, I've always you know um, loved history, especially the history of our people, and um, you know reading for me has always been a very very difficult thing. Um, I was, you know, you know, I wasn't, you know, the brightest kid in school, you know, when it come around to reading, like I always tried to skip that part. Um, but you know, one of the reasons why, um, I wanted to have this conversation with Callum is to make, I guess, the conversation around this more accessible to people who feel, you know, like me that, you know, reading isn't their strongest point and they can go access, you know, uh, this information like that, or even get a sort of a head start into them you know, picking this book up and reading that as well, you know, inspire you to pick that up as well. Um, like I was saying at the beginning of this conversation as well, I want to make this sort of, you know, a regular thing where I chat to different people around the country about uh, some of the research that they've done, um, whether that be books or whether that just be research or some other form of recording the history of our people um, in and around the frontier walls. Um, there is a lot to... Uh, to look up and to read and to watch and to talk about as well. Because like I said, it was roughly, you know, the first 140 years of this country was a violent um, conflict, Um, you know, and that violent conflict really set uh the the parameter i guess you could say for how aboriginal tosh island people with on this continent is looked at um and that has definitely um continued today you know um the continued dehumanization of our people you know has continued you know over the last 230 to 40 odd years later you know from instances like this that are in this book as well you know um that's why it's important to learn these things um, and to discuss these things as well uh, in in your local communities, in your schools, in your pubs, wherever you can. Um, but I definitely want to continue these conversations. Um, and thanks, Brother Callum, for joining us um, you know, and having a chat as well. No worries.